Uh, well, good evening. Uh, my name's Joel. I'm one of the pastors here at Wollongong Baptist Church, or at least for the next uh, two weeks. Um, can you turn to the person next to you and ask them this simple question? Have you ever been electrocuted? Have you ever been electrocuted? So have a chat, and I'll bring us back in a moment. Okay. Uh, hopefully there's not too many stories, if not that's concerning. Um, how about I pray, and then I'll, I'll share with you uh, what my answer is to that question. Uh, Father God, we thank you so much for this time as we now come to open up your word. Uh, Father, we pray that tonight you may teach us. Uh, Lord, if any of us have walked in here feeling discouraged, that you would encourage us. If any of us have walked in here distracted, Lord, that you may give us focus. Uh, Lord, in particular, as we look at the glory of Jesus, uh, Lord, we pray that you give us, I guess, a fresh vision of who he is uh, and help us to respond in a way uh, that is worthy and that is true and that is right. And so, Lord, by the power of your spirit, please be working through us uh, tonight uh, and please grow us in our affection for Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Uh, I have been electrocuted a few times, uh, nothing too severe, uh, to be honest with you. Uh, for you country bumpkins who I can relate to, I have grabbed onto you know, a fence in a farm and waited for the shock to come. I've done that. Uh, for you city slickers who have never been on a farm, I have played that, you know, that dumb board game where you shock one another. I've played that as well, don't like it. Um, also though, more seriously, probably the worst electrocution I've ever had is one time I was uh, trying to work on a microwave and I did so with the power was on. That was a dumb decision, and that really hurt. Don't do that. Um, as I've been reflecting on this, so I haven't had any like, experiences too serious, but actually my mum did. Uh, about, I think, 10 years ago, uh, my mum had a really bad run. She got bitten by a poisonous snake one year, and then the next year she got electrocuted. And what happened is she was just at school, she's a teacher, and she just turned on a light switch, and it was faulty. It had like an ant's nest or something, and it electrocuted her uh, so much that she went to the hospital. So me and my brother went to go visit her, and uh, she was okay. It wasn't um, anything life-threatening, uh, but it was enough for her to go to hospital. And we uh, saw in particular, mum showed me, uh, the, uh, I guess, the marks from electrocution. It showed us where the electricity entered her body on the finger, as well as where it exited um, on her toe. Uh, and, and I remember, as I was pro, uh, progressing those you know, emotions about my mum being electrocuted and different things, I was also thinking, like, what would it be like to be struck by lightning? What would it be like to be struck by lightning? Uh, this week, I did some research, just because I thought so, uh, and I was typing, like, lightning strikes, and then it, you came up with this one poor dude uh, who holds a Guinness Book of Records for the most amount of times of being struck by lightning, uh, and he'd been struck seven times, right? Uh, and obviously survived each one. Um, and that was just incredible. I'm like, man, that guy needs to buy a lottery ticket in the Guinness Book of Records for something you do not want to be in for. Uh, but also, in my research, I came across this uh, poor dude in Brisbane, I think earlier this year, who got struck by lightning while having a shower, which I was just like, that is so wrong. Um, uh, but then on a, on a more serious note, I actually came across what was quite an alarming statistic that about five to ten people in Australia die from being struck by lightning each year. Uh, I read about a story of a, a woman who's 20 years old in Melbourne who, who died last year and a man earlier this year who died in the Northern Territory. You see, in many ways, uh, lightning, it, it is beautiful, it's magnificent. Like, you know, you watch it, in particular when it's out in the ocean or a lightning storm, and you think, whoa, how beautiful it is. But it's also incredibly powerful, isn't it? And it has the power to kill. There's, there's definitely a lot of glory, a lot of, something that puts you in awe in, in regards to a lightning storm. Even early this week, actually, um, as I was at Unidera, a storm hit and the lightning came. I was able to see that, and also my house was shaking from the force. You know what's really interesting is tonight's passage, we're looking at the transfiguration of Jesus. 
And one way it's described is how is that Jesus, as his um, clothes changed and his face changed, that it was as bright as lightning. Bright and as glorious and as powerful as lightning. You know, the transfiguration of Jesus, in many ways, for many of us, is actually quite a confusing passage. It's one that we're just reading, oh, okay, cool, all right, let's go on to the next passage. How does this apply to us? We don't fully understand it. But it's actually quite a simple passage about the glory of Jesus, about the glory of Jesus. And it's a real simple passage where we try to learn about what is the right response to the glory of Jesus. And so tonight, what we're going to do is we're actually going to uh, look at this passage and we're going to be talking about this theme of the glory of Jesus. But maybe if you're wondering, well, why should I listen to you, Joel? Like, what's in this for me? Well, um, in many ways, I think you and I, we want to be like Peter, James and John. We want to have an encounter with God like they had an encounter like all of us here long to have that incredible experience where God you know, comes so clearly to us as in our life and it's just something, such an event that is so unforgettable. Like if you're not a believer here tonight, my guess is, is that you actually hope that I could bring Jesus out from the backstage and that I could get him to heal the sick, to feed the hungry before you and even to fix Mark's Robert's haircut, which is horrible, by the way. Yeah, I am. This is true. Like in all seriousness, a lot of you here tonight, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you probably like would say to me, well, if you show me Jesus right now, I'll believe in him. If you could experience him right now. Or if you're not a follower of Jesus, I mean, sorry, if you are a follower of Jesus, already a Christian, my guess is it's through the ups and downs in life and through the doubts and the challenges. There's just times where you just wish that you could just physically touch Jesus or have him in your presence or experience him or encounter him to some degree and get that encouragement to persevere in your faith. I think all of us want to have an encounter with God. And so tonight, I want us to try and answer that question of how can we have an encounter with God? And to do that, we're going to look at this passage. And to be up front with you in a, in a, I guess, a way that's not normal, I want to tell you what I, I think is the answer to this question straight away as to how do we have an encounter with God. And I think the answer to this question is this. Should I overcome the screen? Um, we need to grasp the glory of God. We need to grasp the glory of God. And so how do we have an encounter with God? Well, we need to grasp the glory of God. Now, disclaimer, uh, to be honest with you, I don't think we're going to be able to encounter and experience the glory of God like Peter, James, and John uh, tomorrow morning in your morning devotion. I don't think Elijah and Moses are going to be there, okay? That's not what I'm promising you. But what I am promising you as we look at this passage and we try to sit under it, that in many ways, as we try to be obedient to this text, is that we can tangibly, if we pursue God, have an experience and experiences that will change our life as we seek to follow Him. And so let's do our best to try and look at this, I guess, big idea of grasping the glory of God. Uh, and to do that, what I want us to do is I want to talk about what is the glory of God to begin with, because maybe like I don't fully understand that. And secondly, let's talk about um, what does it look like to grasp the glory of God? So what is the glory of God and how do we grasp it? And let's begin by talking about what is the glory of God. And I think what we're going to see here is that in very much ways, Jesus is the glory of God, and we need to be able to spot that through his greatness and weakness. And so let's begin by looking at verses 28 uh, to 30 from that passage, which says this. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Uh, a few years ago, I used to uh, watch this show, uh, not really, like, you know, religiously all the time, but occasionally with my wife, uh, called Beauty and the Geek. Uh, has anyone seen that show? 
A few people, okay, a few people too ashamed for their hand up, that's okay, uh, I'm not judging you. Um, I'll let you decide which two groups I resonate with the most out of Beauty and the Geek, but uh, it was a really oh, average show, to be honest, it wasn't that good. Uh, but if you don't know much about the show, basically the premise of it is that there's these bunch of geeks, you know, IT nerds, I don't know, maths professors, I don't know, like dudes are just socially awkward, and then you've got these, I guess, uh, um, more beautiful women or sometimes men that will maybe socially better, and so the point of this show is to try and maybe get, you know, the geeks and, and the um, beauties to try and date or relate, and for the, the beauties to see the, the beautiful thing on the inside of the geeks. Uh, and it was a, a good show, uh, but what was definitely the best part of the show was when they did makeovers. It's when they did makeovers. And when they did makeovers, basically what happened is the geeks, you know, their bushy beard would become a nice hipster beard, you know, their glasses would change into contact lenses, you know, that stained Star Wars shirt that they got from their mum, you know, five years ago, you know, gets replaced by a t-shirt, you know, and they look really nice, you know, tracksuit pants for skinny jeans, whatever you want to think of, um, and they come out, and, and you know, the beauties are like, whoa, I didn't know that was under there, that's so amazing, and everyone's blown away by most of them. Um, you know, I reckon in many ways our culture loves that storyline. You know, you see it in, in many shows from like, uh, I don't know, American Step Next Top Model to renovation shows. We see transformation or even the movie Transformers, one of my favorite movies. How cool of an idea, right, that your little car or your Corolla can transform into this beast of a machine that says Autobots transform. Like it is the coolest idea on the face of the planet, in my opinion. And yet probably what's even better though and more remarkable that sometimes we just skip over how incredible it is is actually Jesus' transfiguration in this passage as His glory shines through His humanity. Like the greatness of Jesus is shown here in this passage. As like I said before, His glory is as bright as lightning. I hope you can see that, that here in this passage, Jesus' splendor, His majesty, it's, His weightiness is on display. You see, I think in many ways you see the divinity of Jesus and the glory of Jesus at his birth when the angels are singing, you know, glory be to God in the highest. But in many ways it seems like Jesus' divinity is sort of goes in camouflage for the you know, next journey of his life up until the transfiguration where it's quite clearly demonstrated in particular to these three disciples that Jesus is God in the flesh. That is, Jesus is God in the flesh. A passage that explains this for us in particular is in Hebrews 1. And in Hebrews 1 verse 3, it says this, it says, The Son, that's Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being. Or John 14 verse 14 says this, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. Or in other words, made His pitch His tent among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. You see, the nature of Jesus' transformation, it reveals His greatness. It reveals His glory. But also, so do the company that was with him as this occurred. He says, have a look at verses 30 to 33. And who's there at the time? It says this, Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, and when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. And as the men were leaving Jesus, uh, Peter said to him, uh, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And I love this uh, comment. Uh, he did not know what he was saying. Uh, I feel like you could probably say that about me uh, a lot of the time throughout the week. Um, 
you know what I find really interesting about this passage is how do we even know, like how did the disciples know that this is Elijah and Moses? You know, did they have name tags like us? Uh, did they have a shirt with their face on it? Like, like I'm not too sure. Uh, but clearly they knew that it was Moses and Elijah, so that mystery solved. But I guess it's also pretty interesting as to why these two figures are there with Jesus at this point in time. Because these two figures, in many ways, are like Hall of Famers of the Old Testament. They are two key figures. Like to begin with, let me explain for you, Moses, he wrote the first five books of the Bible, what are called uh, the Pentateuch, or most of it, other than the bit, bit about his death. He wasn't able to write that. Um, but he, he wrote most of that, and in many ways, he represents the Old Testament law, which is quite important to the Old Testament and the people of God. Whereas Elijah is probably one of the best prophets, hence why my kid is named after him, and he, in many ways, uh, represents all the prophets, you know, the minor, the major prophets, and the hope that they talked about. And so when these two figures come up and are in the presence of Jesus, Moses maybe on the left, Elijah on the right, it begs the question, why are they there? Why are they there? And maybe it's because in this story, what we need to learn is that Jesus is just as great as Moses and Elijah. Maybe that's what this story is trying to teach us. You know, I think that's what Peter thought. And that's why in particular, he, he wanted to actually build tents for Jesus and for Moses and for Elijah, because they're all great men. They all have similar greatness. But let's have a look and see what God says in response to Peter, as he said stuff that he didn't know he was saying. Look at verse 34 with us. It says this, while he was speaking, that's Peter was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. You see, here's the thing, right? Peter thinks that maybe Jesus is just as glorious as Elijah and Moses. And then God shows up and says, No, 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 Peter. He's not just as great as them. He is much greater than them. He is my son. He is the glorious one. He is my glory. Listen to him. He is the greatest of all time. You see, here's the thing. Moses and Elijah, right, they weren't here to give Jesus advice. You know, like Elijah wasn't there to try and teach Jesus about how do you do preaching, how do you teach people, how do you do prophecy. Moses wasn't there trying to teach Jesus leadership lessons. Like this is how you look after the disciples. This is how you get a gathering. This is how you teach the law. No, they weren't there to teach Jesus. They were there to marvel at him. They're there to go, Jesus, teach us. What, like how, how are you going to do this? What's your departure going to look like? As Jesus talks to them and says, hey, look, in many ways, your ministry is pointing to mine. As Jesus talks to them and in many ways, say, hey, Moses, do you remember your exodus and how you saved God's people from bondage to the Egyptians? Well, I'm going to save God's people from bondage to sin. Do you remember the Passover lamb and the sacrificial lamb that saved God's people? Well, Moses, I'm going to be that sacrificial lamb. Oh, Elijah, do you remember how you didn't die, but you're taken up to heaven straight away? Well, guess what? I'm going to do you one better. I am going to die, but then I'm going to resurrect from the dead, and then I'm going to send into heaven so people have the hope of resurrection. Jesus is greater than Moses and Elijah. He wasn't just a great teacher. He's not one of many tents, one of many ways. He is the tent. You see, Jesus, he makes it quite clear that he's the way, the truth, and the life. He is the Son of God, is what he claims. You see, Jesus wasn't killed because he was a good man. He was killed because he claimed to be the God-man. He claimed to be the Son of God. And so right now, if you're thinking, no, nah, I think Jesus is just one of many ways to God, if I'm honest with you, if you said that to Jesus in his presence, he'd probably rebuke you. He'd probably say that is not the case. There are two paths. 
one that leads to eternal damnation, one that leads to life. There's only one way, one tent, and that is Jesus. And look, I know that's not a popular way of thinking. It's very polarizing in our, in our world, but Jesus in many ways probably wouldn't fit into our politically correct climate. But this is something that you've got to understand, is that if Jesus is just one of many ways to God, if he's, if he's, if he's good, but he's not necessarily, and he's great, but he's not necessarily the greatest of all time, let's say he's a hall of famer, but he's not the goat, maybe you've heard that saying, greatest of all time, let's just say he's just one of many, like he's just as good as Muhammad, as Buddha, as Moses and Elijah, if that is the case, if he's just as good as one of many people, he's really not worthy of that much adoration or worship. Like, I don't know if you've heard this saying, but if you believe in everything, you really believe in nothing. And so if you believe that Jesus is one of many, you really don't believe he's that great at all. But if Jesus is the Son of God, if he is the way to heaven, if he is the glory of God, if he is the greatest of all time, then he is worthy of our, all our affection, all our praise, all our obedience. You see, if we want to encounter God in particular, we can't go to Jesus and just go, oh, you're, you're one of many ways in which I can get to heaven or learn from wisdom. No, 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 he has to be your king. It's only when he's your king and you go to him, then you'll be able to experience his goodness and love for you. If you go to him like a genie, he's not going to be able to provide for you. You go to him as a king you submit to, he will help you. And so, church, I hope that we see the glory of Jesus in his greatness. But also, you see the glory of Jesus in his weakness in particular as well, in his weakness. Uh, as many of you know, if you've ever talked to me, I like basketball. Uh, and uh, recently, it's been the NBA playoffs. So in particular, I've been talking about basketball a fair bit. Uh, my apologies for that. Uh, that should end now that the playoffs are over. But one of my favorite players uh, is this guy called Kevin Durant. He's a little bit better than me. Um, uh, he's one of the best NBA players at the moment. Uh, his team, the Golden State Warriors, just won the NBA championship for the third time in four years. Uh, and he was actually awarded the MVP, most valuable player for the playoff series. He just dominated uh, Paul LeBron. Um, uh, my apologies to LeBron, uh, and he was just amazing. Uh, but one of the stories I love about Kevin Durant, actually, is when he was with Oklahoma City, uh, living in Oklahoma City like a few years ago, uh, there was this one time where these bunch of college students or university students were playing flag football, uh, which is basically like Amer American gridiron, but with like tags, sort of like similar to our Oz tag, basically. And these university students were, were playing basically Oz tag, uh, and one of the students, a guy called Simon, actually did a Twitter message to Kevin Durant and dared him to come play with them. Just for fun, you know, just to see how he would respond. And Kevin said, yeah, no worries, I'll be there in five minutes or however long it was. And so this ordinary game of flag football became extraordinary as Kevin Durant actually eventually came out from the crowd after he parked his car and came to play uh, football with these bunch of nobodies. NBA executives would have been freaking out. Like this dude's knees alone are worth millions. And yet he becomes vulnerable. He comes to, he risks injury. He, he comes down to these mere, you know, uh, nobodies as an immortal, basically, in the NBA world. And he is willing to be weak to show his relatability. I love that story about Kevin Durant. But what I actually love even better is how uh, Jesus does that story even better. Like Jesus is God himself and he chooses to, chooses to come down as a vulnerable, fragile little baby as he enters this world. He doesn't give up his divinity, but he adds to it his humanity and for a temporary period of time, he just limits his ability. I love that about Jesus, that despite the fact that he's the greatest of all time, he comes down as a weak little human, a weak little baby. 
The way Jesus enters this world is glorious. It's amazing. It's captivating. But actually, also, the way he departs, in many ways, is even more glorious. You see, I wonder if you remember what Moses and Elijah were talking about as they were talking to Jesus. They were actually talking about his departure. They were talking about his departure. As most of you know, uh, I'm leaving uh, next week. That's my final time here. And as I've been talking to different people, I've had real civil conversations, you know, about uh, how do you feel about the move? Where are you going to live in Melbourne? You know, what are you going to do with your kids? I'm going to take them, obviously. Uh, you know, uh, those sort of, you know, normal questions. Uh, and it's been pretty good. But no one's actually, you know, asked me, hey, Joel, how are you actually going to depart? Like, you know, are there going to be fireworks as you leave? You know, are you going to get on the motorbike and do a wheelie? Like, you know, are we going to have like a parade in the streets? Like, how's that going? going to go down, right? You know, realistically, I'm probably going to say bye, and then I'm just going to walk out the door, you know, after most of you have left. It's going to be pretty tame, pretty boring. Nothing that is that incredible, nothing that is worth discussing. And yet Moses and Elijah, they're here captivated by Jesus, marveling over his departure. You see, actually, that word departure in the Greek can also be translated exodus, and so like I was mentioning to, to before, I think Moses is, is talking to Jesus and Jesus is saying to him, look, Moses, I'm going to have a better exodus than what you had. And it's going to be so glorious. What I'm going to do at the cross as I die for the sin of the world so that I may free people from slavery to Satan's sin and death. I'm going to be that sacrificial lamb. I'm going to free God's people. You see, in many ways, the glory of Jesus, it is demonstrated so clearly at the cross where the greatest person of all time, the most powerful being of all time, lays down his life voluntarily so that us, powerless people, may be saved and redeemed. You see, Jesus, he, he redefines glory, doesn't he? He redefines glory. In particular, this is important to note because last week, as uh, Jesus asked Peter, he said, who do, who do the crowd say I am? And you know, they said, oh, maybe you're Elijah, maybe you're one of the prophets from long ago, maybe you're John the Baptist who's risen from the dead. And then, and then Jesus said, who do you say I am? And they say, you're God's Messiah. And he's like, yes, that's correct. But at that time, they, they were hoping for God's Messiah to be someone who would come and fix the problem of human injustice. They were hoping for someone like Russell Crowe in his prime, right? Like a gladiator. That's who they were hoping for. But then Jesus said, hey, hey, no, no, I'm not going to kill other people. I'm going to be killed. I'm not going to cause suffering, but I'm going to suffer. I'm not going to start this revolution, but instead I'm going to be rejected. That's the sort of Messiah I am. And that's because Jesus knew that there was a greater problem than human injustice. And the greater problem was the problem of the human heart of sin and rebellion against that good and glorious God and how that problem needed to be fixed and reconciled and redeemed. I mean, I was thinking about this, like if uh, in, in our culture in particular, we probably don't think that we need Jesus to be someone who comes and, and fixes human injustice. But I think what we, we hope is that Jesus will come and just fix all suffering. Like a lot of people struggle with that. They're like how could Jesus allow suffering? How could he possibly do that? How could he allow death? But I don't know if you've ever wondered, what would it look like if our world, everyone here lived for eternity? Like, I don't know about you, but that scares me. Like, the human heart needs to be fixed first before humanity can be given eternity. And so that's what Jesus comes to do. What we need more than anything is not good health. What we need is redemption, is forgiveness, is reconciliation, followed by eternal life. Jesus is redefining glory, and he does so at the cross. As the Savior who comes to die, so we may live. And for many people, this is foolishness. One of my favorite um, passages in the Bible is in 1 Corinthians 1.18, where the Apostle Paul says this. He says, The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. It is the power of God. 
And so church, what is the glory of God? Where in many ways it's Jesus. I hope you can see that through his greatness as well as his glory. But let's now talk about what does it look like to, to grasp, to hold on to the glory of God? What does that look like? And the first thing I think we need to learn is that it looks like listening to Jesus. It looks like listening to Jesus. You see, I wonder if you remember what God said when he came down and basically rebuked Peter. He said, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. You see, in many ways, worship is is a correct response to the revelation of God. And how does our God reveal himself? He reveals himself through words. He reveals himself through the word. And the correct response as as he speaks to us is to listen. And it's to submit to him and to sit under his teaching and to do so with reverence and respect and awe, trying to listen to every word and apply it. That is what it looks like to grasp hold of the glory of Jesus. You see, I don't know about you, but when I went to university, like a long time ago and studied civil engineering, I was on my computer, I was on Facebook, I was checking football scores, and I was just waiting for that one line where the lecturer was like, and this will probably be an exam. And I'm like, bingo, all right, you got my attention. But for the rest of the time, I wasn't listening, didn't care. Where Jesus, you know, says, no, God says about Jesus, says, listen to him. And he's not saying listen to him like you listen to a university lecture. Instead, he says, listen to him like it matters like nothing else. Listen to him like a trainee doctor would listen to a resident doctor as he's trying to explain heart surgery. Listen to him. You see, the more we listen to Jesus in particular, the more we obey his teaching, the more glorious he will become. As we see that his teaching is right and true, as we learn that he has designed our life and knows how it is best to be lived, as we do things that are difficult, such as love our enemies or forgive those who have hurt us, as we apply those sort of things, we come to see that Jesus is glorious, that he is great, that he's the greatest teacher, yes, but he's even more than that. And so church, can I ask us, how are we going at listening to Jesus? How are we going at listening to Jesus? My guess is, is if you're like me, you probably listen to podcasts, you probably watch the news, uh, we have our own news reporter, so hopefully watch the news. Uh, you probably you know, listen to music on Spotify, or you probably watch movies, or read blogs. You're, there's a, it's a noisy world in which we live in, and everyone's trying to get your attention. So let me ask you this question, how are you going at listening to Jesus? Does he have a predominant voice and influence in your life? I'm not saying podcasts or news are wrong, but I'm saying is Jesus the predominant voice? Specifically, how are you going at sitting under the Word of God? How are you going at, at that discipline of reading the Word of God? You know, as we're halfway through the year, how's that New Year's resolution going or that Bible plan going? If you're failing, can I encourage you to get back on board? That the Word of God is alive and active. And for us to glorify Jesus and grasp hold of Him, we need to learn from Him and sit under Him. So sit under the Word. Let's dig into it. If we want to grasp the glory of Jesus, we need to understand it. We need to dig into it. We need to learn from it. We need to listen to Jesus. We need to listen to Jesus. But also, secondly, we need to long for Jesus. We need to long for Jesus. In many ways, uh, Peter, I love Peter, he always does the wrong thing, you know, and you can relate to him because, like, yeah, I probably would have done that. Uh, and, he, and, he, and he messed up in this passage. He didn't recognize the greatness of Jesus. But there is one thing that he did really well. And the one thing he did well was how he wanted to savior the moment. He wanted to extend this experience that he was having with Jesus and Moshe and Elijah. That's why he wanted to build a tent. And actually what he's doing there is something that we can learn from him. Because what Peter was trying to do was a good thing. You see, it's a good thing to want to experience and encounter God and His glory. Like, that's what heaven's going to be. So I hope you're looking forward to it. 
It's, it's a good instinct to want to have those emotional experiences where you understand the love of God, not just intellectually, but emotionally, spiritually, like in, in ways that you can't explain. That's what Peter wanted to do. It's something that we should want to do as well. We should want to savor Jesus and his glory. We should want to pursue him and long after him. I want to do, uh, I, I guess, a survey here. And so to try and get your blood moving, I want you to put your hand up here if you know what honey tastes like. Can you put your hand up if you know what honey tastes like? Okay, some of you don't. That's a shame. Uh, poor you. Uh, for most of you here, though, who know what honey tastes like, can I ask you, did you read that about how honey tastes on Google and how it's sweet? Or did you read it in this thing called a library? I'm not too sure where that is these days. I think maybe Hipster Cafe is taking over. But anyway, you know, did you read about it intellectually? And go, yes, honey's sweet. Or did you taste it? Did you taste it and go, oh, yes, it is so sweet. When it comes to the love and the glory of God, I hope tonight that not only do you intellectually know about it, but you long to taste it. You long to experience it in your life, just like Peter, James, and John. In a book I've read recently by Tim Keller, it's a book on prayer, and he has a chapter which just blew my mind, in particular on this topic of experiencing and encountering God in prayer. And he used that analogy in regards to honey uh, for us to, to think about. And, and a passage in particular that he goes to, to unpack his point here, that we can know about God and his love intellectually, but not necessarily experience it, is in Ephesians. Uh, the book of Ephesians is written to the church in Ephesus by the Apostle Paul. And, and this is what the Apostle Paul says in chapter 3, verse 17. He says, And I pray that you, this is the church, this is Christians, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people, get this, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. In this book, Tim Keller makes a really interesting point here. He says, Paul's writing to Christians, Christians who know about the love of God, and he's praying that they, 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 they grasp it even more. That's my prayer for us here tonight. And in particular, when it comes to Christianity and maybe like emotional experiences, I think there's one of two dangers. Uh, one is to have no emotion when it comes to your love for God. And another one is to have too much emotion that is basically based on no truth or anything at all. So let me give you some examples. Uh, maybe it would be, you know, that, 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 that geeky um, Gordon, for example, that theological dude who like knows the Hebrew and Greek. You know, he does his morning devotions with his Hebrew and Greek Bible. He's got a doctorate in theology. Incredibly smart dude. But, and apparently, he loves Jesus, but you have no idea he does because his heart is cold as ice. He, he knows things, but his heart doesn't necessarily love the things he knows. Or maybe you can have, I don't know, crazy Chris, who maybe, let's be honest, is a bit more charismatic. You know, probably at a charismatic church because he doesn't like sermons. He's probably asleep right now if he was here. Um, you know, just loves singing, right? Just wants church just to be about singing and experiencing the awesomeness of God and having his heart stirred to love Jesus. And, but to be honest with you, his love is not really based on a firm foundation. He doesn't really know the scriptures, doesn't really care about the scriptures. He just cares about singing and experiencing the love of God. In his book, Tim Keller uh, makes the, the obvious conclusion and says what we need to do is have religious affections that, that are based on the scriptures, that, that, that we actually know the truth, have deep theology that leads to a love and affection for Jesus. But interesting is he engages with this other old uh, Puritan, this old dead dude called John Owen, who's pretty famous to a lot of Christians. Um, and what he found is as John Owen was wrestling with this issue as well and how Christians should engage, he found that John Owen had an interesting conclusion. And the conclusion that John Owen had is that if he had to pick one of these two Christians to be around, 
that he'd rather be around Crazy Chris, that he'd rather be around someone that who has maybe not great theology, but, just, but loves the Lord and, and wants to experience more of him, rather than being around you know, that studious Gordon who's just got no love for the Lord, but knows a lot of things. And so church, can I ask you, how are you going at longing for Jesus? How are you going at pursuing after him? Is your heart maybe out of order? Maybe it's pursuing after other things and your affections are being chased by other things in your life, maybe career or relationships. How are you going at longing after Jesus and his glory? Is he glorious in your mind? Do you want to know more of him? Do you want to experience his power and work in your life? Or are you distracted? Um, this week, I actually had um, an exit interview uh, with the elders, uh, and they actually asked me what's been encouragement for me at my time here at the church, and uh, what I shared with them is how much I love the, the elders of this church, uh, and how they're, they're godly men who love Jesus, and every week as we meet up as elders, I'm always encouraged by them, I'm always encouraged by their, win- uh, their wisdom, as well as their just love for people. I'm so encouraged by them. Almost every elders meeting, I'd go home and just have a picture of what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus when I'm 40, when I'm 60, when I'm 70. I love that. You're very blessed to have such godly men here. And there's more than godly men who are in the eldership, but that was just an example for me. Men who modeled to me what it looks like to love Jesus, not just intellectually with their mind, but also with their hearts. How about you? How about you? Are you pursuing after Jesus? Are you longing for him? Because that is how you grasp the glory of God. He doesn't just want your attention. He wants your affection. He doesn't just want your mind. He wants your heart. And so how do we have an encounter with God? Well, what have we learned this morning? I mean, tonight, we've learned we've got to grasp his glory. We've got to grasp his glory. We need to understand that Jesus is the glory of God through his weakness and through his greatness. We've learned that when it comes to grasping the glory of Jesus, we need to listen to him as well as long after him. But to do this, if I'm honest, many of us here, we need to wake from our slumber. We need to wake from our slumber. Uh, As all of you know, uh, I have three children, uh, and in particular, my two boys, they love to jump on the trampoline. Uh, And to be honest with you, though, I hate the trampoline. Uh, It just causes me anxiety. Let me explain why. Uh, It's not because I'm afraid that my kids are going to wrestle on the trampoline and and break their arms. I'm okay with that. That's fine. Uh, That doesn't cause me anxiety. Uh, What causes me anxiety is that once upon a time, we had a trampoline, and then a storm hit Unandera, and then it just blew away. And we don't know where it went. That's a lie. I know where it went. It went next door. I think I've shared that story before. But, but after it went next door, I, it, luckily it didn't hit a car or hurt anyone. And so now whenever there's a storm, like I freak out. So much so, actually, that it's within my, uh, my body and, and my mental state that there'll be some times where I'm asleep and I am out of it, right? You know, like those deep, embarrassing like, sort of noises. And, and then at maybe like 3 a.m. in the morning, I subconsciously wake up because it's, it's windy in Unidera, and my body and my mind just thinks, trampoline, trampoline. <laughs> To the point where I then get out of my bed, my nice cozy bed, and I walk outside, you know, freezing cold on my feet, and it's windy, and then I go pick up some timber to go put on this trampoline to try and weigh it down, and I grab anything, you know, I grab wood, I grab concrete, I I grab a child, whatever I can to dump it on this trampoline so I can go back to bed. But as I do that, to be honest with you, do you know how hard it is to get back to sleep after you do that? Like, you are awake at 3 a.m. in the morning when you go out in the cold and try and fix that trampoline. You are awake. What are the disciples doing in this story, you know, before the transfiguration? You know, they're asleep. They're asleep. And then they wake up and then they see the glory of Jesus. 
If I'm honest with you, I think for most of us is that we can just be, we can just be sleepy like the disciples to the point that we just don't recognize the glory that is in front of us. And because we don't recognize the beauty, the majesty, the magnificence of Jesus, we don't listen to him, we don't long for him, we don't pursue him. And so church, can I encourage you to wake up? Can I encourage you to see your king for who he is? To not be sleepy like the disciples. Because I think in many ways, Luke puts their sleepiness as a detail in here. It's almost like an analogy for worship. Because worship is the concept of you waking up and going, you know what, he is glorious. He is worthy of my affection and of my praise. And so church, in a moment, we're going to sing. And and as we go to sing, I want you to understand something about singing. The reason why we sing is not because you have beautiful voices and we just want to listen to you. All right? Some of you do. Some of you don't. Uh, I won't say who. The reason why we sing is because we want to stir our hearts to praise our God. Because He is worthy of our affection. He's worthy of our praise and our glory. And that is the natural response you do to something you love. Be it a soccer team, be it a a lover, whatever it is, as humans we sing. And so in a moment, we're going to sing to God because He's glorious. And can I encourage you to wake up? Can I encourage you to get out of that slumber and to see Jesus for who He is and how great He is? Because He is much more beautiful than a lightning strike. He is much more powerful than a thunderstorm. And he will change your life and give you the gift of eternity if you put your faith in him. And so I'm going to pray. And then the band's going to get up and we're going to sing. And may we sing loudly. May we sing passionately in adoration to our King. How about I pray? Father God, we want to thank you so much that you have always been a God who wants to come down and be with us. That in the Garden of Eden, you walked with Adam and Eve. But even after sin, you still came down to your people in a cloud at the tabernacle and the temple. Your glory came to your people. But Lord, to be honest with you, sometimes we we don't see that. And we worship other things in this world. Our heart can be distracted. We don't see your greatness. But Lord, we are thankful for your persistence. We are thankful, Lord, how your glory came down in your Son, so we may have redemption from our idolatry, so we may have forgiveness and eternal life. Lord Jesus, I pray that you may wake us up from our slumber. Lord, that we may not be like the disciples, but instead we may understand your greatness. We may understand your weakness. We may understand your glory. And so, Jesus, I pray for each of us here tonight that you may give us uh, energy, may give us a longing to want to know you better, to pursue you more, to listen to you, to obey you, to follow you as our King. Lord, we know there's going to be ups and downs, emotional experiences will flow and go up and down, but Lord, please help us to pursue you throughout all these things, because you are worth it and you're worthy of our praise. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.